James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, though sometimes it's challenging, sometimes it, it, it feels like it cuts, and yet your word always reminds us of the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. I thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of your servant, Ryan, and, and that week after week after week, he continuously points us to you to Jesus Christ, our Savior. I look forward to that this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would quiet his heart and his mind, that you would silence his own words and amplify your own. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and let us leave this place transformed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, uh, James lets us off pretty easy, right? You read that and it, you're kind of just chuckling. You're like, my goodness, could you imagine reading this for the first time? Um, he just comes uh, with a sledgehammer of God's grace to us today, and we're going to embrace that. Um, the, the big theme of what he's talking about in this passage is conflict. Some of us grew up with explosive conflict in our homes. Some of us grew up with implosive conflict in our homes, but none of us grew up without conflict, right? That's not an option. Because of the state of the world that we live in, living without conflict is not an option for you uh, or for me. None of us grew up with, with no conflict in our schools, in our churches, in our jobs, or with our friends. Some of us uh, avoid conflict like the plague. That's some of you in this room. Yeah, somebody, I thought you were raising your hand, Chip. Um, these lights are really great because I can just call you guys out. It's awesome. Um, I don't think there will be fluorescent lights in heaven, though, so sorry if you're getting used to them. There will be much better lighting there from Jesus. So, um, but conflict, this, the thing we've been saying 
from day one that we launched New City Churches is that conflict is something to be embraced because we have to trust that God is at work within the conflict. And so today what we want to we look at is conflict and really the nature of what's underneath conflict because that's where James takes us today. As a teenage boy growing up in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, I saw a lot of conflict. Actually, let me rephrase. I saw a lot of fighting, okay? Um, some unfair fighting, you know, where kids got off a bus and then a carload of other kids came and beat that kid up. That was a real story. That was bad. That was not fair. And then some, like, more fair fighting, you know, meet me in the locker room after school kind of a thing. But, but the thing that shocked me was that there was so much fighting on my baseball team that we decided... Um, we decided that we were just going to embrace it, and we, were just, we just went and bought boxing gloves. And so I kid you not, every day after school, for a period of at least three months, we would go to Justin Smith's front yard, and we would just box it out. And we discovered, you know, Bobby Cummins, the, the goofy first baseman, had this right hook that nobody could touch, right? It's just crazy. But, the, you know, the thing we never stopped to ask ourselves that James wants us to ask today is this, why are we fighting? Why are we fighting? You ever ask that question to yourself? Maybe the conflict for you, you wouldn't call fighting. It's a disagreement or whatever. But do you ever just stop in the heat of the moment and just say, you know, what's going on? Why are we in this argument? Why are we quarreling? That's, that's a word we don't use that much. Why are we fighting? Right? Why is there this conflict? What is going on underneath the hood? We all have this conflict, like I've said, and, and most of us um, don't want it to be there. Some of us do, and that's a problem for another sermon. But the, all of us, I think, want to change. We, we want to be different. We, we, we don't want to have these types of things that cause conflict and disagreement, disunity and disharmony among us. So here's how James addresses our conflict in these 10 verses in James 4. They're hard-hitting. The first thing he talks about, I'm just going to give you kind of an overview of where we're going. The first thing he talks about is people problems, all right? People problems. People problems, we discover the people problems that we have through conflict. And that conflict reveals that there's something going on, not just at the, the verbal and physical level, but at the level of desire. He takes us that deep with it. The second thing we see is that we've got God problems. And, and the, the, the way that we see that we've got these God problems is because our desires are competing. The desires of the world and, and love of God are competing, and they actually surface, James says, surprisingly, through our prayer life. That's how we see that we have problems with God is through our prayer life. And, and lastly, the place that we go is the, the, the place that we want to get to as quick as we can, which is Jesus. There's this, there's this phrase in there that I want you to watch for, and it says, but he gives more grace. So, so as we dig in and we go deep, I want you to know that that's coming, but let's let James, through the, via the Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts as we talk about this today. So let's dig in, James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and talk about our people problems, church. Verse 1 says this, what, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He, he invites us to ask that question. He assumes that it's there. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet 
and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. If we were to read modern day psychology and ask them the question of what causes quarrels and what causes fights, or we were to go to uh, the, the playground at Southville Street Elementary School and listen to the eight-year-olds talk about what causes quarrels and fights, we'd hear basically the same answer, right? It's their fault. It was them. If they just wouldn't do this, then everything would be okay. And, and what happens when we, when we assume that this is the solution to the conflict that we have is that the only way out is to suppress what is going on within us. Now, now sometimes that's wisdom, right? But what we're assuming is that the desire is the bad thing. And this is the key thing that you can't miss today. Your desires are not the problem. It is the strength of your desires for the things that are not God that are the problem. That's where the issues lie for us. So let me just ask you this as you, as you dig in and you kind of you peel back the layers in your own heart. Where does the conflict exist in your life right now? Take inventory. Because we don't have time for hypotheticals. The best way to discuss what's going on is to, is to kind of trace it back through the conflicts that we have right now. I'm not talking about necessarily these knockdown, drag out things that you had over Christmas Eve dinner at Grandma Betty's house. Maybe that was it for you. But, but it's often more subtle things for us, more subtle conflicts that we have. James says this, here's what causes the conflict that you experience externally with others. It's the fact that you have a conflicted heart. You have a, a, a heart that is divided, a heart that's not at rest, a heart that is discontent with its position, and it begins to wreak havoc on the relationships that you have. He says this, your, your heart is like a battleground. It's like a, it's like a war zone that's happening underneath the surface. He uses this word passions. In the Greek, it's this word hedone. Can you say that with me? Hedone. And if you, if you, if you are familiar, it, it, it comes, uh, it's the root of a word called hedonism. Hedonism is this idea, it's, this, it's this, this ism or this way of living that is all about pursuing pleasure. I would say this, that, that hedonism is so common for us today as Americans that we can't even sense it anymore. That every form of marketing, every subtle messaging that we hear is all aimed at the hedonistic nature of our hearts. The fact that we want to pursue pleasure above all else and the fact that pain and suffering cannot possibly have any good for us. That, that's what James is talking about here. He's drawing out this pursuit of pleasure that we all chase. Now, it's interesting because, as I said a second ago, that the problem isn't the desire. And, and C.S. Lewis really helped us see this as he wrote about the scriptures and, and, and talked about desire. I want to read a quote from you that is, is my favorite C.S. Lewis quote of all time. And it's in a work called The Weight of Glory. And here's what C.S. Lewis said about desire. He says this, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that desire or our own good, and, and earnest, uh, let me read, let me start again. 
If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment is a bad thing, then I submit that this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant, the Stoics, and is no part of the Christian faith. So so here's what he's saying before we get into the, the meat of it. That if there's this idea that we've just got to suppress desire, that desire is a bad thing, that that came from somewhere else other than the Holy Spirit. Desire is not the issue. In fact, you read the scriptures, you see people filled with desire. In fact, Psalm 37.4, delight yourselves in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Desire is a good thing. God wants us to desire. He made us to desire. He goes on to say this, Indeed, if we consider that the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So so think about that. Your, Your passion for whatever it is that you're chasing in life that's severed from God, and we all have those nuances in our own story, that seems so strong, that seems so insatiable, that seems so difficult to control, that desire, the problem with it is that it's too weak, that it doesn't understand what you were made for and how you were created to desire. Your passions are revealed through your fighting, and they're too weak, he says. He he, he describes it like this. He says, we're half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with, with, with food and drink and sex and ambition. He just rattles off a, a few idols that probably hit home with all of us, right? He says, you just, we're just fooling around with these things. We're just messing around with these things, thinking that they'll give us maybe what we'd always hoped for, what we'd always longed for. On the other hand, infinite joy is offered to us. He says, the picture is like this. It's like an, it's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't that not fire for us today? See, the essence of hedonism or this pursuit of pleasure that James is addressing, that that is at war within us, is that our love for self has outgrown our love for God. It's not, it's not that the desire is bad, it's that the, 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 the desire is out of alignment, that it's misdirected. And, and all we're able to see is that, is that happiness and joy, if we're ever, ever able to find them, must be created by our own efforts. So, so, so let that sit in for a second. What happens is we build this narrative for ourselves. Okay, God created these, th- these good gifts for me, he desires for me to have joy, Okay, joy is the aim of the Christian life. I'm going to chase it with everything in me. So let me backfill the plan on how to get joy. So so we have the vision that God has for the human heart, which is to be satisfied in him, which is to find joy in him, which is to give him glory by doing that. And what we do is we sever the plans of our day-to-day efforts from that vision. And we begin to manufacture what we think will get us to point B. And, And when that happens... Life begins to unravel for us because at the first glimpse that what we had hoped for in the playbook begins to fall apart, 
our lives are destroyed and we begin to, to buckle down, to double down and to, to clutch our fist to keep that very thing that was in our plans from slipping away from us. Amen? That, that's what it's like. And so we get into these things that James talks about when he says, you know, you desire and do not have so you murder. You know, you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and you quarrel. The interesting thing about this is that they're all about possessing something that you don't have. It's, it's all about chasing something that you, 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 you don't quite obtain right now. The conflict with person blank is really about a threat to our self-sovereign kingdom. James says that this conflict comes from what you do not have. So it might be this, they have money, you don't. They have health, you don't. They're married, you're not. You have kids, they don't. You lost your job, they have a job. It could be any of those things. And what begins to come from that is we see what someone else has and we say, you know, that was in my plan and it's not there anymore. And we begin to buckle down and what comes out of us is this conflicted heart and it manifests itself in conflicted relationships because the peace of God is not guiding our hearts and our lives. Now, when we begin to see this manifest itself in our lives, it's an opportunity not to run. Everything inside of us, when we see what we love, what we think will make us most satisfied and happy, is to, is to, is to grip it with all that we've got. But the, but the scriptures say that the Lord gives, but also what does the Lord do? He takes away. Romans 8, as my, my five-year-old son was attempting to memorize last night, is that, is that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Right? He, he's working all things for good. So coupled with those things, God gives and he takes away, but he's always working good for those who love him. It gives us this foundation, this, this footing that lets us have this open hand with God's plan for our lives. And every conflict that you have in your life is likely birthed from trying to dictate the outcome of your life by holding on to things that God is taking away from your life. And that's heavy truth. But James says it reveals something about us that we don't want to miss. But not only that, we don't just have these people problems of conflict, we've got these God problems. Our conflicted hearts reveal disordered loves at the de desire level within us. Let me, let me continue the passage here. He says this, you don't have because you do not ask. What's he talking about there? He's talking about prayer, isn't he? You do not have because you do not ask. You don't pray for it. And then you, you ask you, or you pray for it and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You, you've, you've prayed with a wrong motive to spend it on your own passions. There's that word hedone again, pleasures. You want to spend it on your own pleasure, not God's. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship, it's that word for brotherly love, philea, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend, that same word again, brotherly love, of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So conflict or peace is kind of the, the, the horizontal diagnostic marker of, of how our hearts are doing before our Lord. And unanswered prayer is actually the, the vertical diagnostic marker 
of love or desire channeled in the appropriate fashion. I'd never thought about it like this before until I read this passage afresh this week. So, so James uses the metaphor or picture of a marriage for us to help us understand kind of what's going on here. He, he, and he talks about, he wants us to imagine what it's like to have infidelity in a marriage, which is really difficult to kind of let your mind go there. And, and, he, and he describes what's going on when our relationship with the world and God is out of order. And that's discovered through our prayer or our communication with God. He says this, you adulterous people, and he's reminding us that relationship with God is first and foremost a marriage to Jesus Christ, church. It is a covenant with Jesus Christ. That is how we are in right standing with God. That is how we can say that we are friends of God, not enemies of God. It's only Jesus. So our marriage to Jesus is the very thing that gives us relationship with God. We're friends of God, not enemies of God. He says, imagine this, that the church, or the people of God, have, uh, they, they've chosen to, to sever themselves from that marriage by loving other lovers more than they love their spouse or Jesus. And, and, and what we see is, we, there's, there's this, in, in this moment, there's this, there's this grounds for divorce that God could have for us, right? He, he, he could. He, he, he could leave us because of our love affair with the world and its goods and its things. We see that he has grounds for that. But the, the Father looks at us if we're not covered by the blood of Jesus through our union with him, and he sees us on our own. But when we're united to Christ, he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness speaking for our story. So, so he says it's, it's, it's possible to love the world so much, it's, it's possible to love the world so much that you show that you don't really love Jesus at all. And that, that terrifies us to think about that. And it's, I, I don't want to say, hey, you can lose your salvation, but you can show that maybe you never really had it at all, okay? You can reveal that through your love of the world is what James is saying to us. So he, he sets the context of our, of our, of our love as, as being disordered, our passions of being disordered uh, for the world. And he, and he shows it that it's like being unfaithful in a marriage. It's like this subtle kind of finding out your spouse has been maybe sneaking around on you. It, it started with Facebook and, and then a few meetups, then dinner and phone calls, and, and they say they're just friends. But just like that, the spouse would be an enemy toward you in that scenario, right? He says that, that that's what our relationship with God is like, that we become enemies of God instead of friends with God, and we remove ourselves from that relationship with Jesus, all right? Now, now I, I'm, not, I'm not painting a full picture of a doctrine of soteriology or salvation, but I'm just going where James takes us today, that we can prove ourselves to be an enemy of God through our love affair with the world. Now, there's no better writing on this concept of a disordered love, or, or meaning this, the fact that desires aren't bad, but it's the, the direction and strength of those desires toward the world that are bad, than the, the writings of Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo. In particular, the book that he wrote uh, called Confessions. Here's what he says about it. He says, the essence of sin is disordered love. It's disordered love. In other words, the conflict's not the problem, 
The desire is not the problem, but it's the strength in which you desire and love that has to be realigned. So the conflict is like the check engine light that something is wrong in your soul. And so, you know, you you see how this paints a different picture for us than the way we typically think about our pursuit of pleasure. We might just say something like this, you know, well, I just drink a little too much sometimes instead of saying, you know, I'm just full on out in pleasure you know, just seeking an experience that alcohol or drugs might give me. Or, or we might say, you know, I only look at porn every now and again. I just have a slip-up every once in a while. Instead of seeing our hedonistic hearts of pursuing sexual intimacy outside of marriage and God's design. Or we say, you know, I just like to go shopping sometimes. It just makes me feel better. Instead of seeing that our hedonistic hearts really pursue materialistic goods to satisfy a hole that only God can fill in us. We just brush it off so easily because we're so numb to the pursuit of pleasure. So how do you know when you're having an affair on Jesus with this world? James says, first look at the conflict you have with others. What's it about? Where did it start? What's underneath it? You just ask the question, why am I fighting? If you're not fighting out loud... You're fighting in your heart. Ask the question at the desire level. Why am I fighting? Why am I throwing that person the cold shoulder? Why am I passive aggressive to them? Why do I want to walk to the other side of the room when I see their face? What is threatened within me? You begin to ask those types of questions, and I promise God will show you what's gone awry in your heart. He will. He, he loves to show that to us so that, so that, that that revelation of our sin can lead us to repentance. That's his kindness on our lives. The second thing is this, he says in, in verses 2 through 4, that, that we can trace our prayers, all right? How's your prayer life? That's a, isn't that a strange idea? I had a guy ask me a few years ago, he was kind of an accountability partner for me during that season of life, and, and he said, what are you praying about these days? What a strange accountability question, right? What are you praying about these days? He was on to something. The things that we're praying about reveal the priorities of what's going on in our relationship with God and how we view ourselves inside of, in light of God's kingdom. What is prayer for us sometimes? It's, uh, it's kind of like a cosmic vending machine, isn't it? I'll take uh, A6, a new house, right? And, and, then, and then here's my, here's my tithe coin, and, and here's my small group attendance coin, and, uh, and that's enough, and then God spits out an unexpected layoff from your job, right? Isn't that how we see prayer sometimes? It's like it's not even computing. The, 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 the thing that's so interesting about James chapter 4, when he's talking about prayer, let's read it again. He says this, you ask, you, okay, you do not have because you do not ask. He's talking about prayer. He goes on to explain it, more nuanced. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Okay, I originally read that and thought to myself, he's talking about, when he says you ask and do not receive, he's talking about like you, you didn't receive what you asked for. But I began to read it a little bit differently this week in that God is always answering his prayers. We're just not receiving his answers. I think that's what James is talking about here. We don't receive the things that we're, that we're praying for, that we're longing for, that God, how God answers them. And so we just assume that he never heard them. 
But we know that God hears our prayers. In fact, the book of Revelation says that, that he holds our prayers. If you, I think it's in Revelation 4. It says that, that they're like incense, right? He holds our prayers. He keeps our prayers. None of them fall. We just don't receive the way that he answers those prayers sometimes. You know, Christians have this, what theologians would call a hypostatic union with God through Christ, meaning that we are united. You ever read the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17? He says, I and the Father are one, and you are in us. You are in me. So there's this idea that we are forever united to God. So when we're in alignment with God and his purposes in the world, we're praying for the very things that bring him pleasure and that make his kingdom come about. The the way that God has set up this world is to bring about his kingdom oftentimes through our prayer. Through our prayer, right? I remember asking my mom when I was a freshman in college and just beginning to discover what the sovereignty of God was all about. And I was like, Mom, why do you even pray? God's sovereign, right? What a foolish kid I was. But, you know, the thing that God loves to do is he loves for us to participate with him in the bringing about of his kingdom through our prayer. And so when our prayers are consistently unanswered, we've got to, or not answered in the way that we had anticipated them to be answered, we can step back and say, okay, God, am I in alignment with you right now? Is my heart or my desires, are they on the same page with you right now? It's interesting because one of the first things that Jesus does in his ministry is he says, okay, I'm going to preach a sermon. And here's what this sermon is going to first and foremost be about. Prayer, right? He, he, he says, okay, he assumes that his disciples really don't have a clue how to pray for the kingdom. And he says, okay, let me teach you how to do this real quick. And the Lord's Prayer is a model for us. It's not just a prayer that Jesus prayed. Because Jesus says this to his disciples. When you pray, pray then like this. That tells us that that's, that's, a, that's a model for us to, to imitate. So let's just look at how the, the, the Lord's Prayer reframes and realigns our prayer, our relationship with God. Let's look at it quickly. It's Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. We tend to start with the last three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Daily bread, right? Protection from the enemy. Uh, forgive us of our debts. That's where we start prayer. But the problem is, is when we start with ourselves, we are revealing that we're protecting our own kingdom, that that's the most important thing to us. The Lord shows us how to pray. He says this, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In in fact, he says, you know, start with his name, his identity, not your name, not your identity. We're praying to a God who defines this world because he's not of this world. And he, yet he relates to us like a father. So he's, he's, he's near to us like a father is near to us, yet he's transcendent in that he spoke the world into existence. He, wants, he, he thinks that somehow, Jesus does, that that will shape how we relate to, our, to God. Is that if we're reminded that he spoke the world into existence, he's God, but he's also father. The next thing he says is this, your kingdom come Lord, everything inside of me wants to promote my own kingdom. In fact, I've got this great plan if you want to see it or hear about it. You probably already have, right? 
Here's, here's steps 1 to 75 on how to get me to the kingdom that I think you want me to be in, right? He says, no, 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 let's, let's stop the train right there. Your kingdom come. Lord, I might not be clear on what it looks like for your kingdom to come in this relationship, with this diagnosis, with this situation that I cannot control. And by the way, why did we ever get the idea that being able to control a situation was a good thing, right? Your kingdom come. And then he goes on to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Lord, because your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and I'm finite and you're, you're infinite, I really want your will to be accomplished in this world, but also in my heart. I don't want to miss out on the joy of knowing you and following you with all that I am. Lord, bring heaven to earth through how you abide in me this week. So that's where he says to start. Like if you want to follow Jesus, you want to see his kingdom come, you want your desires to be channeled appropriately, start with that. I can't tell you how often I just blow straight through God when I pray to him. I just forget who he is. And then because of those things, those three petitions, oftentimes the last three petitions, they're a lot different, aren't they? They're a lot different. The daily bread that we thought we needed is a lot different when we consider him, isn't it? Yeah, it, it totally is. Okay, now I'm reminded about how, uh, who you are, and, and here's what I really need. There's a, there's a lot of things that I thought I needed, but you know what? I, I just need daily bread, Lord, to, to continue to, to help advance your kingdom. And, and he says this, and forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So what we see is what I really need more than anything else in all this world is your forgiveness. Because your forgiveness is what determines my relationship with you. Because if I'm not forgiven, I can't relate to you. You won't relate to me because you're holy and I'm unholy. What I really need is your forgiveness more than anything else. I've pursued pleasure like Solomon with my whole life, and I've got to the end of it. And I've saw the same thing that Solomon saw, that it's all vanity. It's all a chasing after the wind. But what I really need more than anything, God, is to be forgiven. And lastly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Lord, I need your eternal protection over my life because the devil has come to steal, he's come to kill, he's come to destroy and to deceive and to lie. And if you were to leave me on my own, he would absolutely consume me. Please be near to me. Please don't ever leave or forsake me. If we prayed like that, I wonder, I wonder if our awareness of the answering of our prayers would be different. I think that it, that it would. Do you see the difference in the realignment that occurs when we consider the kingdom of God and our Father in heaven as we approach God in prayer? So my question is this. When you look at your prayer life, what do you see? How do you see it? Do you pray? Are you aware that you pray? What are you longing for that only God can do? That's why we pray. Only desperate people pray, right? Only people that are humbled by grace and are totally dependent on the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's work in our lives are the only people that pray. So our, our conflict with others reveals what's going on at the desire level and also our prayer life reveals what's going on at the desire level. And our only solution is for the Holy Spirit to actively realign our desires as we submit to Jesus as Lord.
James kind of takes me back to fifth grade PE class. See, fifth grade was this weird kind of place for guys anyway, right? Because the girls were like maturing, right? And we weren't, okay? Especially in fifth grade, this class. And so they, we had this tug-of-war rope in the, in the gym class. And, you know, fifth grade, you know, uh, gym teacher, Mr. Roar, was like, hey, all right, we're playing tug-of-war today. And the guys are kind of like, all right, Mr. Roar. But, you know, our voices are squeaking a little bit because, you know, that's going on. And so, um, and so we get behind the tug-of-war rope, and the girls are on the other side. And we're like, okay, let's take it easy. We start pulling, they start pulling, they pull us flat to the other side of the gym. It is like one of the, still to the day, one of the most humiliating moments of my life as a man. But uh, it, it was just one of these things. And so for the rest of the year, it was like, you know, tug of war every week. I, th- I think we actually finally beat them, but it was, I mean, word got out around the school. We were the fifth grade boys. We were like top dog, and we were getting beat by the girls, and, uh, and it was embarrassing. And so I, this is what I picture happening in our heart is this kind of tug of war. And, and the question is, well, will love of God win out or love of world win out? Because James says that both of them can't win. And, and that's what most of us hope for. All of us hope for, right, is that we can have our cake and eat it too, right? I don't know where that expression came from, but you know what I mean, right? We want the world and we want God. And James says that they're actually diametrically opposed from each other. Listen to what he says. James 4 5 through 10. Do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's there's this conflict that uh, because we've made our own plan, and God has uprooted it, step by step. And the thing that we didn't see all along was that it was influenced by the enemy, right? Because the dominion of the enemy is this world, right? The dominion of the enemy is our flesh, right? Our, our unredeemed nature. And, and, and the thing about the devil's work is that his best work is done when no one knows that he's doing it. And James, it is, is by no surprise that James talks about the devil when he talks about desire. It is is by no surprise that Jesus says you need to pray for protection from the devil because he's at work. And and really what the devil wants you to think about him is that little red cartoon, right? He doesn't want you to see him in those those subtle desires, those plans that you have that are are unfolding that you don't want to unfold, that are causing you to, to be angry and quarrel and fight, that are causing you to be mad at God because he's not answering the prayer the way you want him to. He doesn't want you to see his influence in those moments. The lie that he wants you to believe is that because we've had an affair with the world on Christ, that we've burned that bridge. That there's no more grace. That's the lie. And that's why James is so quick after he cuts us with a thousand knives to say, but he gives more grace. Amen? That's what you need to walk out of here with today because this battle, this struggle that we're walking through this world in will not end until Jesus Christ returns or he, or, or he comes back to us or we go to him. That's when it will end. 
Until that day, we're going to need more grace. We're going to need more of his help. And he gives us this promise just lodged in there. He says, you can draw near to God. And not only is it a one-way street, he'll draw near to you. It's a two-way street. He hasn't burned that bridge. We need to hear this, that, that, that God's grace doesn't just cover what you did when you were in college. It's not going to just cover you at judgment day, but it is going to cover you and strengthen you today. We need to hear that, church. We need to see that we need more grace. The enemy doesn't want you to know that. The enemy doesn't want you to know that you can resist him. So so whatever that that hedonistic desire for pleasure that you have is, it's going to look multifaceted with a crowd this size. And whatever it is that you just want to pursue that's part of your plan for your life, Jesus, his grace, gives us power to resist. To resist. And just like Jesus resisted the devil in Matthew chapter 4, and he fleed from him, he says the same thing will happen to you. If you resist him, he'll flee from you because that's what grace does in our hearts and our lives. But, but he says there's this, there's this lifestyle that follows a person who's received more grace. That, that a lot of people might say they've received more grace. They might have cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it. He says, but here's the difference in someone who's actually received the more grace that James talks about. He has a humble heart. He, he has a heart that's been brought Low. So he's a heart that looks at his sin, that looks at his desires, that looks at his prayer life, that looks at his conflict, and he mourns over it. He weeps over it. Church, when was the last time we weeped over our sin? When was the last time that our sin bothered us so much that it affected our emotions? You see, because Christians, Christians are so unique because we're united to Christ that we can experience more joy than anyone else in the world but at the same time we can experience more sorrow over sin than anyone else in the world and we can be content with living in that tension where do you, where do you fall on that spectrum maybe you're a person that just kind of zeroes in on your sin all the time and you're just a Debbie Downer and you don't think that God can ever change you what would it look like for you to pursue the joy that he's promised you to forgive yourself, to love yourself as he has loved you. On the other stretch, the other side of the the spectrum, what's it look like to actually mourn, to sit in the weight of your sin against the holy God? Because James says that's the person that's received more grace. That's the characteristics of what they're like. We understand that our hearts are this kind of cosmic battleground that's There's a lot going on that we can't see, but Jesus is Lord over it. So James takes us on this journey of of seeing really how wrong our desires are, that that while we wanted to believe that it was that person over there at that time or that situation, that it was really us, that that we really wanted to believe that God wasn't on the other end of the line, but it really, we didn't have ears to hear it. We wanted to believe it was something outside of us that caused this chaotic situation of brokenness that we find ourselves in. What James says, no, 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 it was just you. It was just you. And if you could just see that, maybe you'll be broken enough to receive God's grace deeply in your life. And 
And I just want to close with this. I just want to encourage you. You know, we're not alone in this. Paul experienced this deeply. He, he experienced this deeply. In Romans 7, do you, do you remember the dialogue that really is incredibly difficult to read? He's like, you know, the things I don't want to do, I do. You, you guys know the passage that I'm talking about. And you read it and you're like, oh, man, somebody like me. That's good. But, but he, says, he says, he utters this cry at the end of it. He says, but who can deliver me from this body of death? Is there any way out of this situation? Is there any hope that I could possibly have? Because as you begin to start looking and feeling, at the, weight, feeling the weight of your sin, it can lead to despair if God's grace isn't vibrant in your heart. And Paul was getting on the edge of that. But then he remembered who God was. But thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 8.1 opens up with this robust gospel for us, right? This kind of but God moment, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of sin and death has set you free. Amen? That's the promise that we have. So as we wrestle through this tension, we wrestle through this walk of seeing our sin and seeing our desires and being haunted by them. We cannot forget that. We cannot lose heart that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that, um, that you're with us and that your word has power because it's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, as the book of Hebrews says, that it's able to split our souls down to the point of bone and marrow, of sin and desire. Lord, we're thankful that your word has that kind of power. Now, if we're not careful, God, we can walk out of here and dismiss everything that the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in us today. We can just write it off. We can, we can, we can write off the, the conflicts that we've experienced, or we can turn to you in faith and say, God, show me what's underneath this. I'm a mess. I'm miserable. Please help me. We can turn to him to repair what's been broken as we see as Jesus said, that it wasn't the speck of sawdust in our brother's eye, but it was the plank in our own. So, Lord, would you meet us today? Would you give us hope? Would you comfort us? Would you convict us? Would you show us who you really are in Jesus? And it's in his name we pray. Amen.